Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We'll just welcome Father Joseph for some remarks about what you're eating and why we're eating at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Father Joseph Francovilla. First of all, welcome to Holy Transfiguration. I am delighted to be able to host the Institute and have all of you here this evening. It's uh, my deepest pleasure to have guests come and fill my house because that's when the church is at its, at its best. <clears throat> the German philosopher Feuerbach uh, said this interesting statement, you are what you eat. You've heard that, huh? Remember that? And so if you put good things inside, but... The man was a materialist. He didn't believe that there was anything that was spiritual about individuals. And you are a bundle of nerves and blood cells and fat and tissue and so on and so forth. And that's all there is to it. And when you die, that's the end of everything. You know, in a certain sense, he was right. But not the way he thought he was right. God made us to eat. He made Adam and Eve and placed them in a garden of delight filled with all kinds of wonderful things for their enjoyment, and they were to eat of all the fruits of the trees and the plants in the Garden of Eden. He didn't give them anything, any animals to eat. They were vegetarians, so the Bible tells us. And Adam and Eve were to participate in the blessings and the delights of the Garden by taking food into themselves. And so mankind was a creature who was made to eat. The angels don't eat. They have bodies made of light. They do not need any kind of material sustenance to, to feed on. But we do. We were made a little less than the angels, and we were made more than the animals of the field, and we were made to be able to participate in God's creation by taking in food. All well and good. Until, of course, that fateful day when they disobeyed the divine commandment and the statement by the Father, and he said, Of all the trees, except the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now listen very, very carefully. He didn't say, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to get you for it. I'm going to punish you severely and send you straight to hell without your supper. No. <laughs> uh, he merely stated a fact, you will die. Because we know only two things about God from the Scripture. Number one, he is father. Number two, he is love. That's all. Did you know that? That's all we know about God. He is father and he is love. Everything else is mystery about God. But what loving father delights in seeing the death of his children? Rather, that he would give his life to be able to place himself between danger and his children. And so our loving Father, the same thing. And even when we had abandoned him, 
He never ceased loving us because he first loved us and called us into being. And then after we had abandoned him, he still sought ways to be able to return us to him. And that was by means of the incarnation. Now, Adam would eat of the fruits of the garden and live. After he had fallen and was expelled from the garden, then food became an end in itself. I want it because I want it because my appetite demands it. And then Adam's life became tied to death. We take in dead things to be able to sustain human life. Biblical man did not understand the process of digestion and enzymes. No, it was quite beyond them. They knew that food sustained life somehow, that if you were deprived of it, you got thin and you died. But exactly what took place wasn't quite clear. But we understand that by eating dead things, we sustain our human life. Now, our Heavenly Father wants us to return back to the garden, to enter into that time when the life was given to us from the garden of delights that were for our, ourselves our participation in God's creation, our means of, let's use the word, communion with God's creation. So for us Christians, there's no such thing as this is sacred and this is profane, this is holy and that's not holy, this belongs in the church, this is every single day. We don't set up this false dichotomy between the things that belong to God and the things that belong to this earth. Otherwise, we render creation pointless or foolish or we make the things that are sacred totally out of reach. Now, having set the stage that mankind sustains his life by eating dead things, our Heavenly Father gives us a new way of looking at things. At this mystery of the mystical supper when Christ was with his disciples and he took bread and wine and he blessed and broke and says, take this as my body, drink of all this, all of this is my blood which is shed for you for the life of the world. We become then, like Adam and Eve, partakers of life by eating not of the fruits of paradise alone, but by eating and partaking of the tree of life, the cross itself, namely the flesh and blood of the Son of God. Because you see, the whole purpose of creation was not just to be a nice place to put Adam and Eve. The whole purpose of creation was a place where we could see God's creation, and then glorify the Creator. Because as the Psalms tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, that is, the sky, proclaims His handiwork. The purpose of creation was to manifest God's glory and manifest God's presence. Even food was meant to do that. When we are attending the divine liturgy or the mass, as you call it, then what takes place is not so much God coming down upon the altar as it is the whole church being assumed into heaven. Why is that so? Because during the moment that we are in church at the mass, at the divine liturgy, 
then we see creation manifesting God's glory as it was meant to be seen, namely the place where God's glory shines forth. And what place does it shine forth more clearly and more beautifully than in the Eucharist of Christ's body and blood? Because the ultimate purpose of bread and wine is to show forth the body of Christ. Just this very morning, we celebrated the liturgy of our father among the saints, Basil the Great, the Archbishop of Caesarea in Cappadocia. And after the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood, there's this magnificent prayer that we ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit to do what? To show forth this bread to be the body of thy Christ. And show forth this chalice to be the blood of thy Christ. That we can see what it is that God intended creation to be. All the food that we eat, all the things that you ladies lovingly prepare in your kitchens, all of these things, that, well, I bought the, this at Safeway and I got the bread from Giant. I went to Costco, picked these things up. The things that God gives us to sustain our lives because of the fact that the Son of God became man in the person of Jesus Christ, touching creation, sanctified it. If you take a bar of iron, ice cold black iron, and thrust it into the furnace, it begins to glow hotter and hotter, and suddenly you can't see where the coals end off and the iron begins because that iron is now partaking of the nature of fire, so to speak. And so when the body of Christ entered into the Jordan River, which is part of your tradition in the Latin church and our tradition in the, in the Eastern church, the Feast of the Lord's Revelation, His baptism in the Jordan River. When He stepped into the waters of the Jordan River, all creation was healed at its very beginning. Why healed? Because you read in Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, the Spirit of God brooded over the face of the waters, the chaotic, formless waters. And they became life-producing, and creation arose out of the formless water. Adam fell. Creation was dislocated historically. God could not bear to see his creation so enslaved by rebellion and by sin. He sent his son, who entered those primordial waters and the waters of the Jordan River, and thereby healed them and brought about the beginning of the restoration back to the Father. Now, we participate in that restoration in conclusion by participating in the food that's set before us. That's why we bless our food before meals. Not that the food is, needs to be sanctified because something's wrong with it, it's getting made holy. We are giving thanks, and we take that food and eat it, and we are eating it in a priestly way. God made all of us to share in the priesthood of Jesus Christ to be able to offer back to him the gifts of creation that we have received thankfully and we return them to him with our thanks. That's why we say grace. Another word for thanks before meals are served and meals are partaken of. So to, to sum up finally... We could go on, but I don't want to belabor your patience and, and, and your, your kindness. When we come together to eat, think about little old Feuerbach. Yeah, I what you eat. Nothing more, nothing less. Forget about the spiritual stuff. Mr. Feuerbach, yeah, in a certain sense you were right, but you didn't know why you were right. 
you were right because we know that the creation that God made and that is sanctified by sharing in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, that very body, that material body which he had, flesh and bone like you and I, enters into the life of the Holy Trinity itself in a way beyond our understanding. Material reality enters into the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, never to be separated. And so, yeah, when we eat that food, Mr. Feuerbach, we sure are creation sanctified by the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Creation sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. Creation sanctified by the love of God and His sacrifice of His Son and His resurrection to restore all things back to the Father. And sure enough, Mr. Feuerbach, when we eat that food, we are, and we, be, we are what we eat. We become partakers of the holiness that God has given to us in creation. How does that sound? Good enough for us. I don't care. Please welcome back Chef Nikki Haddad. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming out tonight, especially if there are any Redskins fans in the audience. I'm one of them, so I don't blame you. If I'd only known before we scheduled this. No, just kidding. Um, for all of those of you who uh, are checking your cell phones for the score, just remember. Okay? <laughs> no. Just kidding. If anyone knows the score, I'd love to know it. Um, but moving on, uh, I really appreciate your time tonight and coming to listen to um, some of the facts that I found out as I've researched. Uh, what would Jesus eat? You know, the infamous saying, what would Jesus do? Well, this is all about what would Jesus eat and those before him. Um, and I, I became interested in this when I was attempting to understand the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that Jesus came to earth as man. And if he did, how did he live? And what did he do? And what would he have done? And what would he have eaten? That was kind of a part of it. And it was very interesting because once I started researching it, I found that I come from a Middle Eastern background myself, and I found that a lot of what he ate is the same foods that we are eating today. And Deacon Sabatino mentioned the cookbook that we put together. There's over 450 recipes that I gathered from family and friends, most of Middle Eastern background. And it was very interesting to me that these recipes are not just my grandmother's or my great-grandmother's, but they date back to biblical days. There is a recipe in that book for okra. I'm not trying to sell the book, but just to make a point. There's a recipe in that book for okra that they found etched in the ancient Egyptian um, pyramids on the wall of the pyramids that they would have eaten the same, aside from the tomatoes, which didn't exist then, but we've added them since. Um, but just, just very interesting to know that a lot of these foods have been handed down through the generations from the very first of time. Um, I don't think it's any accident that the Mediterranean diet, or the Bible diet as some people like to call it, is one of the healthiest, if not the healthiest, in the world today. And many studies will show that, many prominent studies done by Harvard and Yale and many, many others. If you research it, you will find that, that if you follow a predominantly Mediterranean diet, you stand a chance of warding off debilitating diseases such as heart disease, obesity, type 2 diabetes, certain types of cancer, um, just by following a true Mediterranean diet. And what is meant by that? The same today as it was in biblical days. You eat very little meat, 
a little bit of chicken or birds back then. They ate a lot of different kind of birds, which we discussed a little earlier, doves, partridge, these types of birds. Um, a little bit more fish. I mean, you have the Sea of Galilee at your footsteps. Of course, you're going to eat fish. Um, and then most of the diet would be made up of grains, fruits, vegetables, and nuts, which are all very, very healthy foods to include in your diet, if not follow it as a lifestyle. Okay? And people who follow a true Mediterranean diet doesn't exist so much in the Mediterranean today because McDonald's and KFC and Pizza Hut have found their way into the area. But studies done on folks in the village who still ate what Jesus ate and beyond, before that have very little incidences of heart disease and cancer and these types of things. The major fat eaten is olive oil. If you've been to the Middle East, if you traveled through Jerusalem, you'll see olive trees forever and ever and ever and, and so old. And everybody will have a story about Jesus sat here or Abraham planted that tree and, <laughs> and whatnot. They'd all like to claim you know, a connection to the Bible. Um, but th they were very valued for the olive, for the oil that came from them, for the oil that lit their lamps back before electricity existed. Um, the, the trees were very, very much valued. And, th and today, that's still the pr predominant fat that's eaten throughout the area in the way of olives and olive oil. Okay? Olive oil is what we call a monounsaturated fat as opposed to um, saturated fats. So it has does have fat, but the kind of fat it contains is good fat. So it's good for your heart, it's good for your body, it's good for your cholesterol levels, and it adds flavor without adding fat to your diet. Okay? And this is what Jesus would have brec had breakfast on. He would have had a piece of bread either dipped in oil, wine, or water, depending on where he was. Um, this is what he would have been served. Typically in biblical days, two meals were eaten a day. In some cases, three, but typically it was two. The bread, they would have eaten perhaps some bread made of predominantly barley. A lot of people think it, it was more wheat. And it was made of wheat, but not as commonly. Wheat was a little bit more of an expensive grain. So it was reserved for special times or the Sabbath, once a week, that kind of a thing. But barley was more commonly used than wheat, although wheat was used as well to make the, the breads. Now, the breads look nothing like what you would see today. I mean, if you buy a loaf of Wonder Bread, whew, I wonder, <laughs> this is what I want to say about that. Um, it really, um, it, you know, spongy and airy. No, it's, first of all, they didn't have the machinery to grind the grain to the point we do, to the powdery grain that we do. And mind you, when you grind wheat down to that consistency, it's all starch, which is why we have issues with type 2 diabetes. We, grain, we, we grind these grains so that there's such little surface area that it's all starch. And so it causes spikes in blood sugar, which causes diabetes. Okay? Um, women, back in the day, used to use a stone or hammer to grind the grains. And they could never get them quite as powdery as what we eat today. So again, it would be more of a whole grain. Than, than what we would eat. And that would sustain them. That would take the shepherds, you know, half the day. They ate, you know, imagine it's probably like eating a rock, you know, to eat a piece of bread that's made with that much of a whole grain. And so they would be able to walk the fields forever and ever without coming back for food. If they did get hungry, a lot of times what they would do is um, on their goats or their donkey, they would have um, animal skins filled with milk from the animal. And in the heat of the sun, and the bacteria, the natural bacteria that would be in these skins, um, it would ferment and it would develop and become yogurt. And so if they did get hungry, 
they didn't pull Chex Mix out of their bags and they didn't, you know, pull <laughs> Cheetos out of their bag. No, they would sit down, maybe perhaps pick a, fresh few, a few fresh dates from a tree nearby and dip it in their yogurt and eat it. And again, we are going back to that. The popularity of Greek yogurt has just exploded. Okay, Greek yogurt is very similar to what they would have eaten in biblical days. Not the stuff with the cookies and cream and the strawberry on the bottom and all of that. None of that, uh, you know, would have existed. The sugars were either honey, that is what sweetened the foods back then. There was no sugar as we know it, refined sugar, okay? Was either honey or um, fruit, fresh fruit or dried fruit that was used with the yogurt to sweeten it. And again, we see a resurgence of that. A lot of people are going back and eating that again today, and it's, it's just really wonderful. For those of you who, who sampled our food today, um, in the front of the line, there's something called lebni. It was a creamy yogurt, which has been strained. The whey was removed from that. So initially, I made yogurt the way they would have in the biblical days, a simple boiling of milk adding a starter which contains live and active cultures and this recipe is in the cookbook if you're at all interested in doing it yourself um, and then you let it rest I cover my pot with a big terry cloth towel and let it sit off in the corner it develops into yogurt I then take that yogurt and I I literally do it the old-fashioned way I take a colander line it with bounty paper towel it's the best don't don't <laughs> use any other in this case you want bounty you pour your yogurt into it and you let the whey drain off and you end up with yogurt cheese as you ate tonight. The recipe is on your recipe sheets for the yogurt cheese if you're interested in trying it. If you're not inclined to make your own yogurt, you can certainly start with one of the more popular and expensive Greek yogurts <laughs> that are out there on the market today. Okay, just let the whey drain off, add a little bit of salt to it. Some people do add homemade jams or fruits to that as well if you'd like to make your own sweetened yogurt. Okay, but very healthy. And again, Jesus probably had that for breakfast. Um, you can go back to eating the biblical way. You can make it with low-fat milk or low-fat yogurt. Not a problem at all. And there's no sugars in there, again, to cause spikes in your blood and cause obesity and all these other things that the processed foods of today do to our diet. I'm sorry? Why doesn't it taste sour? Um, it can taste sour. And to be honest, I don't know the secret. Now, if you ask my mother-in-law, she'll tell you that um, when you're making your yogurt, if you add hot milk from the pot to your starter, it will be more sour. But if you add water to your starter to water it down and then add it to the pot, it will be more sweet. Oh. And nine out of 10, she's right. But why, why that is, I can't tell you the science behind it. Um, I like my yogurt very sour, so I make it so that it's sour. And the longer it sits, the more sour it becomes. And the lebni has a bit of a sour tang to it because normally I would wait a bit, a few days, a week before I would make the yogurt cheese out of my homemade yogurt to get the tang from it. Okay? Alrighty. Um, in many cases, uh, food of the Bible was much healthier and it was organically grown. Today, that's the buzzword and that's the trend. Organic, let me run and get organic food. Well, in biblical days, they didn't have a choice. It was all organically grown, okay? Um, there were no pesticides. All of the meat was free range. There wasn't a choice. Now, people didn't eat a lot of meat in biblical days, but not because we're called not to or to be vegetarians. We're just called to eat within reason, 
don't overdo it. And in fact, in some parts of the Bible, it would say that eating too much meat could make you sick. Uh, meat was also expensive. And the animals that people kept, they didn't really want to use for meat because they were more valuable to them alive. They would take eggs from their chicken and their birds and eat them. They would take the milk from the goats to make yogurt and cheese. So as you can see, if they were to kill that animal, that would cut out a lot of meals for them, that, and they could use the animals for other things. And so they kept their animals and only reserved them for special occasions and for sacrificial meals, <coughs> for ceremonies, weddings, these kinds of things. Okay. So they, again, they were not called to be vegetarians. It was just what was, uh, existed in society at that time. The wealthier you were, you probably had meat a little bit more often, but most people weren't in that category, so they just didn't eat it all that much. Um, <clears throat> people of the Bible got their protein from other sources since they didn't eat meat. They ate a lot of nuts, pistachios, walnuts, and almonds. Um, again, these nuts have fat in them, but they're monounsaturated fats, so a little bit goes a long way. I always tell folks these days, I, I teach healthy cooking classes, and I tell them, if you want to eat healthy snacks during the day, keep small baggies, one-ounce baggies of nuts in your dust drawer, in your car. So when you feel a hunger pang, instead of going through the drive through window, you grab that one ounce of nuts. Not only should it take you to the next meal, but it has just the right amount of fat to give you bursts of energy to keep you going to the next meal. And it keeps you from overeating as well. Okay, and you're also getting very much, um, cardiologists will tell you that eating an ounce of nuts a day is wonderful for your heart. So you're getting so many more benefits by eating that ounce of nuts than you are going through McDonald's drive-thru or, you know, ordering a pizza from down the street. Okay. Um, just follow my notes here a little bit, make sure I haven't missed anything. Well, it's easy, uh-huh. What about, is this never salted? Nuts always unsalted? Well, at the time they did roast nuts, but I don't, I'm not positive that they salted them, but I doubt they did. Um, when you roast or toast nuts, and we have a recipe tonight, if you had the goat cheese that you dip the dried fruits into, it was covered with toasted nuts. When you toast your nuts, you bring the oils to the surface, the nut oils, and when that happens, it gives you a much more um, powerful flavor. When you have a high quality of flavor, you're a lot less likely to eat more. There's a book out there called The French Woman's Diet, and what they say is, sure, we eat chocolate, and we drink great wine, and we eat a lot of cheese, but the fact that we use quality ingredients uh, prevents us from overeating. A little bit is enough. And I think the reason in this country that we tend to overeat and supersize everything is because we use chemicals and additives and artificial flavors to flavor our food. So we go in looking for flavor, and we're not getting it, but when we think more is going to satisfy us more, but it's not. It's the quality of what you're eating. So back to toasting the nuts. If you toast your nuts, the flavor is such a punch of flavor that I don't think they needed the added salt. They did use a lot of salt um, that they got from the Dead Sea, but they did use it to season their foods, but not as much as we do. Um, I would, was going to talk on this later, but since we're talking about it, I have Mediterranean sea salt here. And um, it doesn't have less sodium in it. A lot of people have the misconception that using sea salt means less sodium. It doesn't. It's exactly the same amount of uh, sodium as this, uh, table salt has in it. But what it does have, you can see, for those of you who can see or are familiar with it, the grains are larger, okay? And it has a lot more mineral in it. 
So this is uh, farmed from the Mediterranean. There's dead sea salts. There's all kinds of different things on the market now with sea salt. So what it has is added nutrients and um, minerals. So by eating this, you're going to get a little bit more on the mineral side. And because the grains are bigger, when you turn this onto your food, the grains still come out rather large. So there's a bigger punch. Remember the flavor issue we were just talking about? You're going to get a little more punch of flavor out of a lot less salt. So in the end, you do get less sodium because you need less of the sea salt. So if you're not using it, I urge you all to go out and get your sea salt. Now, I don't quite, haven't quite mastered baking with sea salt, so I still use table salt. There are uses for it, um, but this is what you should have on your table. It should go on top of your food when you're going to eat it. It should go to season your food when you're going to eat it. And I might also mention while we're on the subject of salt, is that when you're going to add salt to a dish, especially one that you're cooking, boiling, baking, that kind of thing, try to add it in the last five minutes of cook time. Because what happens is if you add it early, some of the flavor boils off, but the sodium doesn't. And you may need to add more salt, which means you're doubling your sodium intake. If you add it at the end, you get the benefit of the flavor and probably lower sodium by adding it right at the very end or at the table. Allow people to add their own. Okay? All right. So let's get down to making some recipes. And we're going to recreate the recipes that you had on the buffet tonight. We kind of did it backwards where you got to try them, and now we're going to show you how to make them. So if you enjoyed them, um, I'll go through the demo showing you that as well. Um, for those who tried the za'atar bread, or the, as we call it in, in Arabic and as they called it in biblical days, mana'ish, which is plural for the bread with the uh, herb mixture on it. And again, this was a very popular breakfast, bread with something. Um, because they didn't use a lot of fats in biblical days, spices and herbs were what was used to flavor foods as well as your olive oil. And that's all they used. They didn't use fats and chemicals and artificial flavors, once again, like we do today in the West. So they had to rely on what they had in the land to flavor their foods. So what they would do is they would take their bread and dip it in herbs or, again, wine or water, and this would be a meal for them. Now, something that's very popular um, throughout the Mediterranean is it, it's a thyme. There's, there's several, several varieties of thyme, okay? So what you were eating on that bread was a mixture of thyme, sumac, sesame, and a pinch of salt, okay? Um, <clears throat> thyme grows everywhere throughout the Middle East. And in researching back to this particular recipe, uh, it was a wild thyme that was used, and possibly hyssop. There were references to the possibility of this herb mixture containing something called hyssop. And hyssop, um, in Exodus 12.22, uh, Moses instructs the elders of Israel to mark their doors, their doorposts. Remember the story where he said, put blood on the lentils over the doors so that the angel of death will pass over? They used a hyssop branch for that, dipped in blood, and painting the lintel with blood. Um, the hyssop has a really sturdy, barky-type stem on it, a very strong stem. But the leaves were very delicate. And when they were really in bloom, you could even make a salad out of it with just a little bit of oil and citron, or vinegar, which was the acid of the day. Okay, And so the, the wild thyme goes back and having its origin as, as a hyssop. Um, also in Psalms 51.7, hyssop is used as, a, as an example of purifying and cleansing herb. 
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, I thirst. So a branch of hyssop was used to put vinegar and, and tap it on his mouth to take away the thirst. So hyssop was seen quite frequently throughout the Bible. And again, they believe that's what may have been used in this um, blend. We have sesame seeds here, and um, ancient history goes back to the Babylonians. Sesame seeds were used back in the time of the Babylonians, the ancient Babylonians. Um, they used it as a medicine for medicinal purposes to uh, fix ailments of the stomach. Okay? Um, and then we have sumac, which is um, native to the Mediterranean. This is ground sumac, and I'll tell you here and now, sumac does grow in the United States, but many, many times it's poisonous, so please don't, you know, somebody tells you that's a sumac uh, bush, please don't pick the berries and crush it in an attempt to make this. Buy it in a store. Um, I don't know the difference. It's very pretty, little red, rusty red, pretty berries on the side of the road. You see it in the country when you go on drives, but um, you have to be a, an expert or know the difference between between the poisonous sumac and, and, and not. Um, this is becoming more and more popular in the stores, the sumac. It's, it's a berry that's crushed, and as you can see, it's kind of a rusty red color. I'm going to leave these items up here later, so if anybody wants to come up and see, I'm, I'm sure probably some of you in the back can't see this, but I'll leave it up here for you to see. Sumac has a very sour flavor. It, it's what adds the tang, if you noticed a bit of a tang to the bread that you ate. Um, many times uh, throughout the Mediterranean and biblical days, as well as today, this is used as a marinade for meats. It would top salads, be put into stews, topper for vegetables, adding a bit of a lemony tang to whatever was being made. And in this case, we mix it with the sesame and the thyme to create the bread that you had tonight. So I've done a mixture of those items here. I'm going to put them into the bowl. And then what you add, now you can store it like this, and it will store for a year. Um, these days we put it in the freezer. Back then they probably put it in a cold, dark spot in a cave or somewhere where they would store foods for the winter and for the cold. And it would go on for, for a good year. And I've, well, it doesn't last a year in my house, but I keep it, you know, quite a long time. So what you would do is add a little bit of olive oil to this. And this I actually keep in my cupboard all the time. And if you take just regular pita bread even, you can just spread a little bit of this on your pita bread and make a sandwich out of it. Now, I don't know if it's an old wives' tale or what, because I know my mom told me and my grandmother told her, and now I tell my kids that, uh, <laughs> that zatar makes you smarter. It helps with brain power. And I have one child who's very picky, but he eats it every day that he has a test. I better have a zatar sandwich. I have a test today. <laughs> so we've got him going on it. There we go. So it's just, it makes kind of a thickish paste with the olive oil, just kind of for spreadability. And then you would take your bread, again, just a regular piece of pita works, a flat bread, um, any kind of bread you choose. I like to dip pita chips in this. Not Wonder Bread, right? Not Wonder Bread. <laughs> Not Wonder Bread. Yep. I, um, as I said, I come from a, a Mediterranean background. My family's Lebanese, and I actually married a gentleman who's Lebanese as well. So my kids are being uh, raised in quite a Lebanese home. And when my daughter was um, a child, I sent her off to go to her first play date at four years old. And 
Didn't think much of it. Well, when I came to pick her up, the mom said, you know, she's probably hungry. She didn't eat a whole lot. And I thought, oh, my goodness, why? She said, well, she said, I asked her if she would like um, macaroni and cheese, and she didn't know what it was. <laughs> I had never made macaroni and cheese. She was my first child. I didn't open boxes that had 27 ingredients and half of what I couldn't pronounce on them. I just didn't feed her like that. So she said, well, how about if I make you a grilled cheese sandwich? And she looked at her and said, well, what is that? <laughs> and the lady said, well, you take this bread and you put cheese in it and you toast it up a little bit. And she looked at her, oh, well, we eat that at home, but don't you have that round bread? I don't know what that square bread is. <laughs> so there was no wonder bread in my home. And uh, needless to say, the next day I went out and bought a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese and made it for her, <laughs> just so she'd know. And I bought a loaf or two of American bread just in case she was at a friend's house. She wouldn't ask for the round bread instead of the square bread. <laughs> so, so basically, this is what you would do to make the bread, just kind of paste it on. You don't want to paste too much on. The sumac is very pungent. So whenever you, you're using it, if you like the flavor tonight, as I said, you can toss a little bit into salads, make sandwiches out of it, um, marinate your meats. It's delicious marinade for meat, but you want to go easy on it because it's very strong and very pungent. Okay, So that's about all I would put. Tuck it in the oven, warm it a little bit. You don't have to do that, but it tastes a lot better. I think that's more for the sake of the bread. Okay, And this would be a typical breakfast. Talk about the breakfast of champions. This was the breakfast of champions in the Bible. There were no Wheaties. So this would, would have been what it is. Very simple to make. You can buy za'atar mix in most Mediterranean or Middle Eastern markets out there. Just go in and ask for it. And um, as I said, I normally store it in a Ziploc or a jar in the freezer so it lasts optimally as long as I need it to. Okay? All righty. Moving on. To our next recipe, our next recipe. <laughs> I've got the wrong sheet here. Alrighty, we have a cracked wheat and chickpea salad. Now, as I said, <clears throat> excuse me. <coughs> wheat was eaten very frequently in the Bible, but not as frequently as barley. Um, but this would be a typical lunch or dinner, something to sustain and hold the folks over for an evening especially without meat. Now, we've used crack wheat, and I specified on here um, coarse bulgur wheat. Bulgur wheat is not just simply a grain of wheat that's been cracked. A lot of people think that it is. But it's been parboiled, pre-cooked, if you will. Okay, So it's a very fast-cooking grain. A lot of grains take a lot of time to cook. This one does not. Okay, This was 20 minutes, approximately, to make. Yeah, it's, it's very quick when you make the cracked wheat. Now, a lot of times when you go to shop for it, it will be coarse or um, fine or number one, two, three, four, and one being the smallest. And if, you've, if you're familiar with tabbouleh, that's what you would use for tabbouleh. And the reason for that is you don't cook it. If you see recipes to cook it and put it in your tabbouleh, it's, it's just not a traditional recipe because what we te technically do is we have some lemon and olive oil in there and we put a little bit of that fine cracked wheat in and we let the lemon and the um, olive oil rehydrate that wheat. Okay, so you put a little bit, and uh, that's all it takes to rehydrate it. Okay, so I put two samples up here, and as I said, I'll leave these up here for those who are interested and would like to walk by. But we have a very fine cracked wheat, which is, I don't know what I would compare that to, maybe couscous. And then we have a very coarse, which is more... Um, well, it's very coarse, okay? And that's what we've used today. When you're making salads, like something like 
to sustain a person, you kind of want to use the larger wheat. Um, it's a little bit heavier, a little bit more filling for a, a person. If you're using it as a um, secondary ingredient, such as in the tabbouleh, the parsley is actually the primary ingredient in that recipe if you're making a traditional tabbouleh. So you want to use the fine cracked wheat because, again, you want the parsley and tomatoes and flavors to stand out rather than the wheat. Okay. Yes, sir. Question. Uh, not only does it seem to a lot of problems with uh, gluten. Yes. What, uh, what, how does that compare with the gluten? Well, um, it does have gluten in it, there's no question. And, and how that compares with what I have as opposed to the biblical days is really what's quite different. Back in the days of the Bible, they didn't have the anti-nutrients such as gluten in the wheat. Um, that has come through processing and cultivating throughout the years. And so they didn't have issues with that back then. We, they had three types of wheat in the Bible. We have 25,000 varieties of wheat. Yes. And so because things have been played with in the labs and this type of thing, we've got what are called anti-nutrients in there now, which cause allergens in some folks. So anybody who, ha who has a gluten allergy wouldn't want wouldn't to eat this. I would suggest something like quinoa, if you're familiar with that, or couscous, which is actually semolina flour, um, or what else, barley. I would use a different grain. Brown rice. Brown rice would be fine. Absolutely, this would work with any any other grain. So you don't have to stick to this recipe if you liked it and you have um, eating issues, or if you just don't have happen to have cracked wheat in the house. You know, feel free to substitute it out. Are you saying that the wheat that was grown in biblical times didn't have all the manipulations that's now, and that's why it didn't have that much gluten in it? That's correct. So can we go back to that type of wheat? Um, you'd have to look for it. There's emmer wheat, which you can find. And there is a type of wheat, I cannot recall the name. Do you know it? I, I have a nutritionist in the house, so I thought maybe I would ask. Um, that folks, even with gluten allergies, if eaten in small amounts, can eat it because of the low amount of gluten. But I'm sorry, I don't recall, recall the name. I'm sorry? No, no, no. It's a name very unfamiliar. Um, but in my research, I came across it. And I will have to look that up. Um, for next year. <laughs> I'll be happy to give that information out. But it does exist. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry? Um, that doesn't sound... Yeah, that doesn't sound like it either. You know what I'm going to do is I do have some of my research notes with me. When I'm done with the presentation, if I find it, I will, I will let you all know what it is because I did come across it and I may have noted it. I'll look for it, okay? All right, so again, we've taken the wheat and they would have boiled this over hot coals um, or sometimes they would just simply let it cook out in the sun in the biblical days. It would get hot enough that they could put it out with some water and it would actually you know, cook the wheat to the soft stage that they're looking for, um, for the cracked wheat. The other thing that was very popular throughout the Bible, beans, lentils, legumes, that type of thing. And again, this is where they got a lot of their protein because they didn't eat a lot of animal fat. Now, the thing that we know today with modern science has shown us that when you take a grain and combine it with a bean, you now have all the amino acids and it replaces meat. It's a total replacement. You're not losing anything by eating this dish as you would if you were having a piece of steak, okay? It, it, it replaces it replaces the meat. Except the flavor. Well, oh, but didn't you love it? Did you try this? 
uh, honest, I prefer this to a steak, but that's just me. <laughs> um, so yeah, for vegetarians as well who are trying to get their protein, this would be a perfect protein for them to eat. And as was pointed out earlier as well, when you put citrus with, um, well, with the lentils. We'll get to that when we get down there. Not exactly with this. We're also gonna, we also put some scallions. And as I talk, I'll just add this in because really what you wanna do is prepare the wheat. Once it's cool, you just add all of the ingredients and you can be chopping and dicing and slicing those while the wheat is um, rehydrating. And I guarantee you, it is faster to make then the pizza delivery man can get to your door. <laughs> also, for those of you who abstain from meat during Lenten periods, this is a great meal. It'll fill you up. You can make a big bowl at the beginning of the week and it'll last all week for you. Take it to lunch, have it for dinner. It's there. It's very hard in this country to um, abstain from meat sometimes. We're busy people. So if you can make dishes like this and have it tucked away in the fridge, it makes it a lot easier to come home when you're tired and hungry you don't have to look for something. This is there for you, okay? So I highly urge you. And just as an aside, you can take the same bowl of rehydrated cracked wheat and have it for breakfast by adding dried fruits and coconut, maybe some nuts into it. So you can make yourself a big bowl at the beginning of the week and use it for all kinds of different things. Um, you know, during, during those abstinence periods. Really helps you get through, makes you feel full, satisfied, and it's so good. <laughs> you won't miss your steaks. <laughs> there we go. We added our, our chickpeas. We're going to add some scallions. Onions were used in abundance throughout biblical periods, and um, these days we know that uh, it contains vitamin C. The scallions would contain some vitamin C. They also help to, and, and more studies need to be done, but a lot of studies are showing that it helps ward off certain types of cancers of the internal organs, okay? Um, it has fiber. It has something called antioxidants. What are antioxidants? Antioxidants are very important. Now, I would say that Jesus didn't talk about antioxidants, but you can bet our Heavenly Father knew what he was doing. I mean, how perfect is that, that we didn't have to think about putting these ingredients together to make a perfect protein to replace meat? He knew that we probably shouldn't overdo the meat or that we couldn't afford to overdo the meat. So he provided something that was going to be nutritious to our body without us even having to have scientists to tell us that. It just naturally happened that this forms a complete protein and that the Scallions have antioxidants which ward off diseases. Again, back to those debilitating diseases, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, um, obesity, certain types of cancers. Scallions also are, are being found more and more to help uh, prevent or reduce inflammation. And that's a word, if you haven't heard a lot about it, you're going to be. Inflammation is not just limited to arthritis anymore or asthma sufferers, but a lot of diseases are caused by inflammation. One of the most prominent studies being done these days is on heart disease. Inflammation causes heart disease. And how does that happen? I hope I'm not uh, messing up my microphone. Um, you know, when your blood vessels inflame, they narrow the space that blood can flow through to get to your heart and can cause a heart attack. So eating scallions can help to alleviate a lot of those uh, diseases that we've talked about or help to reduce the effects of inflammation on your body causing some of these diseases. So a lot of people think something like scallions, it's nothing, it's just a garnish. No, it's not just a garnish. It does a lot for flavor and it does a lot for your health, okay? So we've added some scallions into that, some chopped parsley. And again, parsley, 
Two tablespoons of parsley has about as much antioxidant power as an orange has. And again, people would discount parsley. Um, again, I remember when parsley used to just be a garnish. I grew up in a very small town in Michigan, and um, parsley used to be free. So my sisters and I would go in and we'd be like, I hope no friends are watching us, but we'd take all the parsley out of the jar to go home and make tabbouleh out of it, you know? And um, they got smart and started charging after a while. But, you know, we got away with it long enough. Um, so we're going to add some chopped parsley. Again, that adds fiber. That can help reduce cholesterol. Again, leading to heart health for us. We have some dry mint. Okay, now, keep in mind, you can use fresh mint or dry mint in this salad. Um, we, we have fresh mint here in our little cup. And I would recommend for all of you who say, well, I don't like to use fresh herbs because I buy them and then I don't use them all. I use so little of it, I end up throwing them away and they're expensive and I don't like to have to do that. So what I recommend when you buy herbs or you actually cut herbs from your garden, if you have some left, put it, treat them like flowers. Put them in a cup or a vase of water, just like this, in your fridge. Cover them loosely with a piece of plastic wrap. You'll get about a week or 10 days out of them, so you will get a little bit of a longer life to be able to use those more. But if you still don't use them, you want to take them out and individually lay them on a paper towel like this. And then stick them into your microwave if you have one or a, or a low oven. And uh, in the microwave, it takes about two minutes. In my microwave, it might take a little longer or a little less than yours. You have to work with it. But once you touch a leaf and it crumbles in your hand, it's ready to be dried. Put into a bag, a Ziploc bag or a glass jar and put it into your freezer. You'll get a year's worth of use out of it with really nice flavor. And you can go back to using that over and over again. So I really urge you, again, to try to get more herbs into your diet. Inflammation, fights inflammation, fiber, antioxidants, and flavor. Flavor. A lot of people, when they come, I, I teach classes at Suburban Hospital. I do a lot with Mediterranean, and a lot of people will come into these classes, and I talk about herbs and spices instead of fats. And that's how you flavor your food, to maintain health and for flavor. The diet in biblical days was very simple. It wasn't complicated, beans, vegetables, fruits, but it's what they did with them. How they used herbs and spices and yogurt to flavor. You go out now and you pay big money for a bowl of olives on the table. I laugh, you know, I, I make my own, but um, a lot of people would, would think that's gourmet. And, and again, for those who grew up in the region would know that it's a very traditional, you know, yogurt, maybe some za'atar on the table. Um, some olives is a very traditional Mediterranean breakfast. Maybe some cheese. And yeah, we eat it every day. So, we'll add a little bit of mint. And re remember that um, dried is more pungent than fresh. So you want to use a little bit less, about half. So if something calls for two tablespoons of fresh herbs, you would use one tablespoon of dry. Okay. So we put some dry mint in there. And we want to put a little bit of olive oil. Again, for flavor and for monounsaturated fat benefits of it. Now, olive oil comes in different forms. You have extra virgin, virgin, olive oil, and light olive oil. Okay. Um, we talked about antioxidants a little earlier. And antioxidants, again, are something very, um, you need that for, for, to support your cells and you need it on a daily basis. Antioxidants don't stay in your body. Antioxidants come in the form of plant foods. 
Um, it doesn't come out of a can, bag, or box. It's plants. And if you can see, if you look up here, look at the beauty and the color of the Mediterranean diet, okay, the Bible diet. Antioxidants, there's several antioxidants, and they're all specified by colors. For instance, you have your orange color, which has keratin. Remember when you were little and your mom said, eat your carrots, it'll protect your eyes? Well, she was right. The keratin protects eye health. The red color has lycopene in it. Tomatoes, watermelon, these type of things have an antioxidant called lycopene. Lycopene um, will help protect against certain types of cancer, especially for men. There's my husband. Is he in the kitchen? I feed him tomatoes every day, not because he just likes them, but simply because it protects against prostate cancer. It's a very strong protector against prostate cancer. So as you see, each color has a different um, function in the body. So you want to eat as much color as you can. Well, you wouldn't have to think about that if you eat a Mediterranean diet. Now, I would put some tomatoes in here, but they didn't have tomatoes in biblical days. They came much later, so I can't do that tonight. But if you go home and make it, you know, you can slide a little, put some tomatoes in there, some cucumber. Cucumbers did exist in the day of the Bible. Add a little crunch, add some radish, some red onion, that type of thing. You can play with it a little bit, but this is the basic recipe that we would follow. Yes, ma'am. They had garlic. Yes, they did. And I forgot that in this recipe. It was in what you ate, and I was, you know, I brought the little thing to <laughs> mortar and pestle to do it. But I did forget to write it down. One to two cloves of garlic also goes into this salad, and I apologize that I missed that on the recipe. So thank you for bringing that up. Alrighty. So we're going to. For those of you who don't know, this is a mortar and pestle, and this is how they did it in biblical days. So if you don't have one, it's a lot of fun. Um, I have a real hard time using those machines that you squeeze to get garlic out. It just doesn't get the garlic out enough for me, and I want a lot of garlic. So I use the mortar and pestle, and how that works is you'll take your garlic, and I like to slice mine up. I don't, I don't like to work that hard to mash it from whole. And that's another reason people in the Bible were healthy. They got a lot more exercise. They had to work for their food. Many of them, I just put a little bit of salt to help create um, some coarseness so that I can grind this. And then you take it and you just mash. And I kind of like to get in there. And I hope I'm not blowing your ears out back there. I'll try to stay away from the microphone. But you just kind of mash it up. And you get almost like a paste. You get almost like a paste. Did you turn me off? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So for those of you up front, I can show you this. Okay. As you can see, you just kind of mash it. All right. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take some lemons, some fresh lemon. Now... In the days of the Bible, it was, there was something called the citron. The lemon did not exist. It was something between an orange and a lemon. Um, and, or you could also use vinegar in this recipe if you would like. So if you don't have lemons or you're not a lemon fan, please feel free to substitute any kind of vinegar that you'd like, some kind of an acid. And again, please don't use the jarred lemon juice. It has, it's a very artificial flavor to it, okay? Once you start using real lemon, you won't go back to the jar. 
Lemon has wonderful, wonderful qualities. It has antiseptic qualities. It is full of vitamin C, which is why it's an antioxidant. Um, helps build your immune system, protect against colds and flu. And right now, they say this year's flu season is going to be wicked, so eat lemons. I like to go buy the warehouse bags of lemons. And what I do is I squeeze them out into ice cube trays, pop them in the freezer. A standard ice cube has about two tablespoons of lemon juice in it. So that way, I'll always have fresh lemon juice, and I don't have to resort to that green bottle, which I keep in case, but usually I have to toss it because it goes bad before I can use it because I try to use the fresh lemon when and if I can. Okay, let's put one more half in there. These are pretty juicy lemons. One way to get a maximum amount of lemon out of your lemons is to, again, if, you, if you're a microwave user, is pop it in the microwave for about 20 seconds, and then you don't have to roll it on the counter and put your muscle. We try to get out of exercise any way I can, I'll tell you. So, and that's how I do it. Okay, pour this on. A little bit of sea salt couple grinders, fresh ground pepper, which has absolutely no nutritional benefit, but it tastes good. So we'll use a little bit of that, and there you have it. Mix that up, and that's the salad that you had tonight. I didn't do a lot of measuring, as you can tell. I don't generally do that. Um, you can if you like, but adjust the recipe to your liking. If you want more garlic, add more garlic. More salt, less salt. As we said, different vegetables. You can do that as well. Yes, we cooked it initially, or we soaked it in hot water. You oh, can... You don't have to put it on the stove. No, you can, but personally, uh, you don't have to. And I tend to overcook it into mush when I do that. I forget about it. So it's much easier to just... But you're not dirty exactly. Put it... Exactly. That you saw the one dish. <laughs> Because guess what? Guess who's got to wash dishes tonight? <laughs> got to leave the church kitchen clean. So there you have it. Okay, moving on. Yes? I've heard that the less cooking, the more raw your food, the more healthy, the better it is. Yes, that's correct. Although some cooking to some extent is not a bad thing as well. Um, for those of you who enjoyed the lentil, soup tonight or Esau's porridge. Um, we're going to duplicate that as well. And I'm going to go through it somewhat quickly here because we're not going to be able to make the whole pot of soup in front of you, but I can show you the process and the procedure that you go through. We're going to put a little bit of olive oil. And in the case of cooking, you want to use a light or a regular olive oil. Um, extra virgin olive oil burns very quickly, and it will give a very rancid taste to your food. So when you're cooking, you want to use a lighter olive oil. You can use vegetable oil if you'd like, but why? <laughs> this has more antioxidant benefit. Okay, and then what you would do is you cut up an onion. Now, the flavor to that soup was two things. It was the onion and the cumin. So if you liked it, that's what you were tasting. The, lem the lentils really don't have much flavor, nor does the rice, especially when you're using a plain rice. Okay? Um, so you want to put a lot of onion uh, because, you know, it, whenever I make it, and I skimp on the onion, my husband comes calling. He's like, where's the onion? It's not in there. This is bland. This is boring. Okay? So I've par-cooked the onions again just to make things go a little quicker, but uh, a regular yellow onion or a white onion will work in this recipe. Saute it three or four minutes till it's just translucent and soft because it is going to get a good amount of cooking time um, after that. All righty. 
We have <coughs> short grain rice, which basically disintegrates into the soup. I don't know if you noticed, but it was a pretty creamy soup, yeah. okay? There's absolutely no dairy in that. Again, if you're abstaining from meat, it's a beautiful soup to make. I make a big pot of it and eat it all week long. Um, you can put lemon as opposed to the cumin. I put cumin tonight, but I like it with lemon. My daughter will put half a lemon in there and enjoy it that way as well. Serve it with some pita chips or crackers, and it's a really hearty soup that will get you through abstinence periods as well. So we're going to put in our rice, and we put in our lentils. Okay, and the red lentils are split. They don't have the shell on the outside, the germ. They're split red lentils, and you can get these in most Middle Eastern or Mediterranean markets. A lot of the Asian stores carry them now as well. Okay, we're going to put in some cumin. Well, let's put our water first. Now, I always put the minimum water in and then add if necessary. It seems like every batch of lentils is different, so I would start with the four cups and then increase if need be at the end. Once you give it a stir, you'll know if it's too thick, if you need to thin it a little bit or not. Okay. And then you're going to cook that for about 20 minutes with the lid on. Lift that lid and you've got a pot of creamy goodness. It's really wonderful at the end. Add your salt, add your cumin at the end, or squeeze some fresh lemon on there. If I'm serving the company, I like to just put a little lemon wedge on the side of the bowl and serve it up that way in a shaker of cumin. Uh, uh, sorry, I thought somebody... You, you, 15 minutes with the lid on, and then I give it another five with the lid off. Just, oh, it's extremely easy. I just made that about, what, an hour before you came in? And the pot it was servings for enough for 150. So you, you, you like triple this one? I, um, this one, I <laughs> more than tripled it. <laughs> yeah, I used three and a half gallons of water, so <laughs> I figured people would want to come see me instead of the Redskins, so I was planning on a big crowd. So there you have it. And again, a beautiful, beautiful meal during abstinence and any time, really. Yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah, you, uh, it doesn't mention the rice, I think, in, in oh. the paragraph. So is that for the sauteing, or is that Oh, my gosh. Oh, it's, it's um, oh, where to put it in? You put it in with the, add the lentil, sea salt, and four cups of water. You're okay. right. So yeah, put it all in and put the pot away and go watch your favorite show, Dr. Oz or whatever's on, and come back to it 15 minutes later and you have dinner. Again, faster than the pizza delivery man can get to your house. Okay? Yes, sir. Where is your recipe? I think that the lime is a little more bitter, has a little bit of a more bitter flavor um, to it. The lemon is just a little bit more mild, and that's the only thing I could speak on that would be the difference. You could certainly use lime if you prefer it in this recipe or in the Kraft Wheat recipe. Absolutely substitute it. When Meyer lemons are out, they're a little sweeter. They also taste really nice in the recipe. And you could even squeeze an orange if you'd like over that salad, and it would be good. Not so sure in the soup, but it, it would be fine. Any kind of citrus would be delicious in that salad. Okay, so very interchangeable, the citrus are. Nikki, we'll do, uh, we'll do question and answer after you're after, done. So go okay. ahead and finish as, as you see fit, and then we'll do that. Sounds great. We have one more recipe to cover, something which, again, you would very, very typically have for dessert in biblical days. Um, 
A little bit of cheese, a little bit of fruit, whether fresh or dried, with a little bit of honey. The only sweetener they used was a little bit of honey, okay? So tonight, if you tasted our dip that came along with the, with the uh, dried fruit, so oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it, wonderful. You just basically take a tube of goat cheese, okay? And if you're not fond of goat cheese, you could certainly use uh, a cream cheese or any kind of a creamy cheese, something with a creamy texture, um, if you want to try this and you didn't because you have an aversion to goats, goat's milk. And it's, it's very simple to make, always great if you have last minute company as well, but I just kind of mash my goat cheese into the bottom of a casserole or an oven safe dish. I put on some honey and I always try to use local honey if I can. For folks with allergies, if you eat local honeys, you can um, tolerate them a little more and you can also build resistance to having allergies if you eat from local honeys, okay? So we put a little bit of uh, honey on, pop it in the oven, and when it comes out, again, the toasted almonds to bring out the flavor, add a little bit of protein, and serve it up with some dried fruit. You could also serve it up with some fresh fruit if you'd like, and you just use it as a dip, okay? And that's how they would have eaten in, in the biblical days. They didn't use a lot of utensils. They would use bread to dip, and they would use the fruits to dip, rather than any kind of a utensil. The hand was very, very often used. Right hand only, left was used for unclean acts. <laughs> and that still exists today. Um, yeah, it's extremely easy. Um, sometimes I like to put a little orange rind in there for some flavor. So it add a little bit of uh, uh, citrusy flavor to the goat cheese. Cut that goaty taste <laughs> that goat cheese sometimes has. Um, or add some herbs to it. Thyme is a very popular one that might be added to that. So we've come to the end of our recipes and our recipe demos. Um, I hope that you enjoyed the samples. I hope that you got a lot out of the information tonight. Again, most of these recipes and others similar to them are in the church cookbook that we have at the back table if you're interested at all. Um, and if you have any questions, I'm more than happy to answer those. Uh, there'll probably be a period of question and answer, and then Deacon Sabatina will direct you where to go from there. Thank you so much for your attention tonight. Appreciate it very much. Questions? May I just make yes. a comment? Ahead, I, I researched that type of wheat that we, the gentleman asked the question about, and it's called einkorn, E-I-N-K-O-R-N. And eaten in small amounts. Folks who are normally allergic to wheat can eat this in small amounts, but at your own risk. I'm not a doctor. It's just research I've done. So, And to is this the you. biblical uh, wheat that they would have yes. eaten in the Bible? Yes. Okay. Emmer, einkorn, and the last one I really can't pronounce, but <laughs> what is it? Okay, and that would be the third. But the einkorn you can find. It is out there. It's probably very difficult to find, but you can if you really would like to. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, questions. Don't be shy now. You have to at least have a question about the lebne because my <laughs> wife makes lebne at home, and it's just, it really is, it's part of our regular diet at home. That's what we eat, and it's it's wonderful. It is. It's wonderful. So make sure you make that for yourself, and uh, it'll transform your your life at home in your kitchen. <laughs> this is not a question, just a very uh, observation. My father was 87 when he died. He never had a cavity, and uh, my niece uh, has a dentist. 
asked, you know, uh, they, they told him that part of the reason my family didn't know have cavities because we also come from a, a Mediterranean roots, yes. Corsican roots. So it also helps not have cavities. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> we can add that yeah, to the Yeah, if you list. come from the Italian peninsula, you're just stronger. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I do have a lot of cavities. Okay. <laughs> How long do you recommend sit letting the labneh yogurt sit for it to taste? I, would, I usually put it in the fridge for about four to six hours. Um, if you want it really creamy, you would leave it a little less time. If you want it, like tonight, it was pretty um, stiff, like a cream cheese, about six hours, depending on the quantity that you put. And then you can actually make cheese out of the whey that drops off, but that's next year's class. <laughs> I'd like to know how much does the red lentil soup make in servings, about approximately? Four to six. Four depending on how much you eat of it, yeah. And I always double it. I never make the smaller amount, but I provide it because a lot of people don't want that much lentil soup. But You can't let Nikki get off this easy now. You've got to give her hard questions. We have Thank three you. teenagers at home, mm -hmm. and I wondered what your thoughts are on counteracting the McDonald's culture <laughs> because that's all they are exposed to. Mm -hmm. And they never grew up with it. So it's Even though they never ah. grew up with it, oh, ever. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I, I went through the same thing, and, and I have... Um, a 14-year-old athlete in my home who eats about 3,500 calories a day, and it's really hard to keep her in food, God bless her. But, um, you know, I make deals with them. I, you know, I'm one of those parents. I know some psychologists would say tisk tisk, but um, I allow it now and then because I think it's important to allow it now and then. But I think getting them involved in the kitchen, for instance, grabbing a cookbook that has healthy recipes in it and say, pick something that looks good to you and let's make it together. Um, let them go shopping with you. Um, let them look through the produce section and pick things that maybe they haven't even had before but looks interesting to them and that you'd like to, that they might like to try and engage them in, in that way, and then reward them, if you will. Again, if there's a psychologist out there, please don't write me a nasty email, but um, reward them by taking them now and then for the McDonald's. And, and that's how I handle it. They're very limited, but they do get it now and then. But engage them in the kitchen. I think it's very important, and it's good life skills for the future as well. Can I add just one, because I am a father, and, uh, and my kids don't eat McDonald's and things, but um, that if, if, we're, if we care about what we make, it's just going to be better. And I think, unfortunately, we don't take the time nowadays. We're just too busy to really prepare wonderful things in the home. And so you know, when, they, <clears throat> when my daughter ran across the McDonald's hamburger for the first time, she thought it was disgusting. Now, she's six years old, and maybe that's going to change. I don't know. I hope not. But she did think it was disgusting because she had had meat in the home that had been lovingly prepared. And uh, I think that if we just take that approach, not just to food, but to life, mm -hmm. things can, can change. Their perception is going to change. They can see the difference between cheap things and good things. Uh, yes, for those of us who don't have time to prepare loving meals, uh, where can we get, pick up some of these kinds of uh, <laughs> foods already prepared without uh, spending a fortune? 
prepared, this food prepared? Yes, okay, it's ready to eat it. Um, your, 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 your contact information, you can make dinner for them. Oh, there you go. I'm a personal chef, and I can put those meals in your freezer very <laughs> That's what I do. No, um, <laughs> are you in Virginia? Yes. Okay. Are you familiar? I'm from Maryland, and honestly, I don't go out for this kind of food. I honestly don't have favorite restaurants where you can buy this. Now, I know Whole Foods Markets, if you have one near you, or Wegmans has a lot of things like tabbouleh and hummus and some of these kinds of things. I'm not sure you could find the lentil soup there. Um, uh, Lebanese Taverna, I know there's one in Tyson's. I, I'm not sure where else in, in Virginia, but they put out a really nice product in Mediterranean Middle Eastern food. You'll probably find most of what was here tonight on their menu um, as well. Uh, but again, And Nikki, would, would you also say, that, uh, I, it seemed like a lot of things you prepared tonight didn't take a lot of time. They just, you got to know kind of what to do, and as you gain right. the art of it, it becomes quick. About That's yeah. right. That was the as well that was coming. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you keep a, a, a Mediterranean or a healthy pantry, again, the soup, 20 minutes by the time I chop the onion, get it into the pot, I can walk away and take a shower if I've just walked in the door, go help with homework, and come back to that in 20 minutes. Same for the cracked wheat. It's a 20-minute soak. You could use couscous in its place. That's probably a 10-minute soak. Something called quinoa, if you're familiar with, that's about a 10 or 15-minute cook time. You can substitute the grains, but you just have to, like, this is in my pantry. I mean, I buy probably five pounds at a time of red lentils, and, of course, I always have rice in there, onions, Always. So it would be a very easy fix to have this. And you could also pre um, double the recipe and freeze in portions, put them in your freezer. So on those nights that you don't have time, pull it out and just warm it up to eat it. Okay? Could you tell us where some of the local Mediterranean stores are where we could find some of these products that wouldn't be in our grocery store? Sure. Um, I know of two on Rockville Pike. Again, I'm from the Maryland side, so Virginia Lanny. We have a Mediterranean bakery. Mediterranean bakery off Pickett and Duke Street. They, it's huge. They have everything. There's also one near the Giant and McLean. Okay, near the Giant and McLean. Yeah, gourmet basket near the Giant and McLean. Okay. Yeah. Um, Nikki, following up on the thing about the how to avoid McDonald's, yes. maybe for next year, Yes. suggestions of how to travel. Because oh. usually when you travel, uh -huh. you got You know, you got to get off of the freeway at the ox, uh, off ramp, and usually their offerings are McDonald's, Burger King, and you know how to, and how to basically an alternate an alternate way of approaching travel. Okay, and, and just so just as an example, um, we travel yearly. Uh, we have a, a timeshare, and um, I always have olive oil and zatar, and that's what we eat for breakfast when we travel. It's in our hotel room because it doesn't need to be refrigerated, and I always take. Uh, the ingredients to make um, a Lebanese salad and Lebanese rice with me because about two or three days into the trip my family craves it. So when you eat this kind of food, the fresh, the Mediterranean, the healthy, a few days of eating not so healthy and your body knows it and it tells you and they're like, mom please, kids, 10 and 14. So it's the truth. But I'll keep that in mind, thank you. So uh, 
So as Deacon said, one of the ways to uh, perhaps uh, make sure that you have time to prepare uh, is to change your life. What would you recommend as a chef would be the first things to do to make sure that you have time in the day to prepare these meals? What would I... Uh, how, how would you make sure you have enough time in the day to, to be prepare. able to prepare these things? Okay, pre-planning is a great way. Um, a lot of times I'm, I work and I have children, uh, very busy lifestyle as well. So what I try to do is maybe Sunday afternoon or evening, again, I would make a big batch of the crack to eat so that I could add uh, dried fruits or fresh fruit to it in the morning for cereal or add fresh vegetables at night um, and make a salad and a main dish out of it, combine it with beans. I would definitely keep a pantry at all times with dried beans and canned beans. There's nothing wrong with canned beans. You just want to make sure that when you open them up, um, you rinse them. If you rinse them, you rinse off 33% of the sodium that they've been packed with. So if you have beans and you have grains in your pantry, you really can whip the fast cooking grains. You can really whip a lot of this up in 20 minutes, even on a typical evening. And again, as I said, you have it ready faster than the pizza delivery man or the Chinese guy gets to your house with food. So you, I guess, have to make a choice how you want to use that 20 minutes. You know, do you just want to crash out and relax or do you want to just take 20 minutes to make yourself a healthy meal? I also try to encourage doubling and tripling recipes that can be frozen and pop it in your freezer for later use for those nights you don't feel up to making a meal. Um, you can pull them out of the freezer. And a lot of the grains nowadays can be frozen in Ziplocs or um, Gladware, that kind of thing, and pulled out at a moment's notice. Thank you very much, Nikki. My pleasure. Thank you again for having me. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.